Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 24th of July 2022, 11 o'clock service. Stephen Kurt speaking in the series, God's Big Plan, How Was Israel's Failure Factored In? Well, especially once we've reached a certain age, we'll often look back and see that the way that our lives have worked out contains a fair amount of mystery. So some parts of the story of our lives are straightforward. There are times when we, for instance, taken an obviously good decision and it's worked out well. Or there may be times when we've taken a fairly obviously bad decision and it's turned out to lead to disaster. But we all know that life is a lot more complex than this, don't we? There will be times, I'm sure, for you when you've acted in completely good faith in doing something and it's turned out terribly. But reassuringly, the opposite can happen as well. In all of our lives, there are times when we've taken a wrong turn, whether that's been deliberate action or it's just been something we happen to do, and things for a time have therefore worked out badly, only for those same events mysteriously and strangely to then lead us onto something really good occurring that wouldn't have happened otherwise. Now, it happens quite a lot, and as I say, it's not just to do with moral failure. I failed geography O-level. I don't think that was so much a moral failure, because I did work quite hard at it, but I failed geography O-level, which at the time seemed a bit of a disaster, because I was planning to do it for A-level. But it was that very failure that led to me having to choose another A-level, and I chose religious studies. And that turned out to pretty much set me on the path to where I am now. Looking back, actually, my decision to do geography A-level wasn't a particularly good one. I wasn't that good at geography. It was just that the geography teacher directed the musicals that we did, and I thought I had to stay in with him. But from a serious point of view, what I think makes me a Christian more than anything else is seeing again and again as I go through my life the way in which God redeems things that have gone wrong in people's lives and God uses the very disastrous things that have happened in people's lives to then lead them on to things that are new and unexpected forms of his grace. God doesn't normally do that by scrubbing the consequences of our failure, but making that very failure lead to things that are good that wouldn't have happened otherwise. And that's basically what we get throughout the Bible again and again. And we particularly get it in the place of Israel in God's big plan. Last week with Tim, we asked the question of why God chose Israel. And the answer is basically that Israel was chosen to be a key part of God's plan for rescuing the world. And it was very much in continuity with the way that God had already acted in the Bible. Because right from the start of creation, God calls human beings in general to carry responsibility for the world. That's why Genesis 1 describes human beings as being made in God's image. They were meant to rule the world on God's behalf, to reflect his character and care for the world in the way that they acted. But fairly soon, according to those stories at the start of the Bible in Genesis, it all went wrong, didn't it? With the very human beings that God created to care for the world disobeying God, which meant that the world, which was intrinsically connected with the people made in God's image, went spectacularly wrong as well. But, and this is the really extraordinary thing, 
regardless of the mess that human beings had made of the world, God never gives up on that plan of bringing about his purpose for the world through human beings. God never scraps plan A and goes for a plan B instead. God instead sticks to plan A, which was revealed in the process to be a lot more mysterious than anyone had hitherto realised. Now I want to repeat that sentence because I believe it's key to what I'm trying to talk about this morning. God never scraps plan A and goes for a plan B instead. God instead sticks to plan A, which is revealed in the process to be a lot more mysterious than people had hitherto realised. And that mystery of the way that God acts, it basically centres upon the way in which he uses or used the failure of Israel. Not just of Israel, but Israel's forefathers, the patriarchs as they're called. Think of all those stories early on in the Bible of people like Abraham, people like Jacob and Joseph. All of those people were deeply flawed. And they were people who sometimes did things that were absolutely terrible. But that reinforces the point that God, maybe bizarrely, maybe strangely, maybe nonsensically to us, committed himself to working through a flawed and sinful people as part of his big plan for dealing with that sin and restoring the world. And that pattern, established right at the start of the Bible in Genesis, it continues with the people of Israel. God rescued the people of Israel in the biggest single episode in the whole of the Old Testament, the Exodus or escape from Egypt, and then, crucially, he gave them his law through Moses. And in the process, according to Exodus 19, the chapter before the Ten Commandments, God says something very important. He declares that Israel would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, the most obvious sense of this is that of a people given a special revelation of God so that they could serve as an example to the rest of the world, an example of the goodness and the blessing that comes from living under God and his rule. And we can understand that sort of idea, can't we? We can understand the idea of Israel being a living symbol of the reality of God and the non-Israelite nations living around Israel, seeing what it looked like to live under God's rule, seeing the goodness of that and how it made sense and being attracted, therefore, to follow that God as well and worship him for themselves. The trouble is that it didn't work out that way, did it? Israel turned out, by and large, to be the very opposite of an example of what it looked like to live under God's rule. Pretty much as soon as she left Egypt, Israel was disobedient to God, while Moses was receiving those very commandments for their direction. And that continues during their time in the wilderness that follows. Israel constantly grumbles, is constantly disobedient and idolatrous, idolatrous and so on. And later on, when they enter the promised land under Moses' successor Joshua, the disobedience and sin continues with constant disaster rather than blessing as a result. God continues to show his grace, God continues to rescue them, but the state of Israel gets worse and worse. 
and it really reaches its nadir, its depth, in the book of Judges. With even the rescuers that God sends to Israel seeming to become worse and worse, Jephthah and Samson and so on. Now, the idea for a time appears to be God's establishment of a monarchy. It looks for a while as though that's God's magic bullet. That's the, uh, that's the answer that will sort this all out, and particularly the coming of King David as a man after God's own heart. And that includes God making the most amazing and seemingly unconditional promises to David about his dynasty eternally ruling, and so on. But as I think most of us know, after a promising start, David turns out to be just as flawed as his people. And there's one particularly cru crucial episode here. One of David's followers is a Gentile, or non-Jew, called Uriah the Hittite. He was just the sort of person that Israel as a kingdom of priests and the holy nation was meant to be drawing closer to God. And Uriah, whose name means the Lord is my light, he is utterly faithful to David and seemingly to God as well. But what does David do in response? David has sex with Uriah's wife Bathsheba, and when she becomes pregnant and the child can't be passed off as Uriah's, David fairly casually has this faithful Gentile follower murdered. And when the prophet Nathan, not the youth worker at Christchurch, but the prophet Nathan, when he rebukes David, the words that he says are really significant, and here they are. The prophet Nathan says to David, because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the very people who should have been looking to Israel for instruction and example, because you've made those people show utter contempt, the son born to you, will die. Now bear in mind David has been told about his dynasty being eternal, his offspring being crucial and so on. But the beginning part of that is the really crucial bit in this context because it's the opposite of the calling of Israel and the calling of Israel's king. David's also told by Nathan this, the sword will never depart from your house. And from that point on, we see Israel disintegrating more and more until several hundred years later, after countless further disasters, Israel is taken away from the very land that God had promised her and given her and taken into exile. So what is this all about? Was God's plan really about Israel becoming a perfect example to the world or a good enough example? Because if it was, it was a pretty naive and disastrous plan, wasn't it? The answer, I believe, is no. And that what was really going on with God's call of Israel turning out to be a lot more mysterious than we might at first realise. And the person who gives this the clearest exposition in the Bible is really St Paul in his letter to the Romans. Now Romans, if you've ever tried to read it, is long and in places pretty complex. But its whole point, I believe, is to explain some of the mystery within God's big plan. Paul engages with the idea that Israel was meant to be that perfect example to the world of what it meant to live under God's rule, but then he's ruthlessly honest about Israel's failure 
in this regard. And one of the most damning statements that Paul makes about Israel is where he quotes the Old Testament to say this of Israel. As it is written, Paul says, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. In other words, the very opposite of Israel fulfilling that calling to be a kingdom of priests and a light to the Gentiles and so on. Paul says the very opposite has happened. The other nations, and perhaps he has in mind this episode with Uriah, because it's very similar to those words that the prophet Nathan spoke to David, very similar in meaning at least. The very opposite had happened. The other nations looked at Israel and they held God in contempt as a result. And from this point on in Romans, that's only in chapter 2, Paul then has to explain how God's plan was possibly able to go forward when the very people that he had chosen turned out to be such a big part of the problem. And the answer that Paul comes up with is that Israel's failure was factored in as part of God's solution. Romans is particularly complex when it comes to Paul's explanation of the role of the Jewish law. That passage that was read to us earlier by Pamela is complex. But in a number of places, what Paul says is that strange though it might seem, the law that God gave to Moses, while holy and good in itself, was actually given to increase Israel's sin. Now here are the references, not just from chapter 7, but from chapter 5 and chapter 3 as well. It does seem totally bizarre that God gives this, this law and part of its purpose is actually to increase Israel's sin. What on earth is going on? It does seem bizarre, but Jesus said something very similar when he quoted the prophet Isaiah, our first reading today, to explain why he taught in parables. And Jesus says that he did this in order to keep Israel unable to hear and to see and therefore to respond to God. Let's have that passage up now. These are the words that, strangely, Jesus speaks when he talks about why he spoke in parables. He quotes Isaiah from chapter 6 and says, "'You'll be ever hearing but never understanding. "'You'll be ever seeing but never perceiving.'" Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. You'd think that was just what God would want. What on earth are we to make of these words? They're incredible. I'm yet to read any commentary that I think accepts the plain sense of these words. What they normally try is twist them and make out they're really saying something different. But if we take them at face value, what on earth would make God do this, and particularly to his chosen people. It seems to make no sense whatsoever. Unless, because I believe there is an answer, unless Israel herself was always intended to be part of the plan by which sin could be carried by the human beings that God had commissioned to rule the world and therefore dealt with unless this was actually the way that Israel would fulfill her calling to be a kingdom of priests. The crucial bit of the jigsaw, Paul says in Romans, is recognising that Jesus' coming as Israel's Messiah represents the surprising resolution to all of this, because he was the one 
who would fulfill that calling on Israel's behalf, chiefly by carrying all of this sin that had amassed within Israel within his body. That's why it's so important to recognize that Jesus Christ means Jesus the Messiah, the Messiah of Israel, rather than forgetting that messianic significance to that title. Israel's failure, in other words, was a vital part in the process. God's mysterious plan, according to Paul, was to somehow draw the sin of the world to a height within his chosen people. Why? Precisely so that that sin could then be passed on to her Messiah and dealt with when Jesus died. The story of Israel, in other words, is all part of the atonement process leading up to Jesus. It's all part of the working by which the sin of the world is amassed together within God's chosen people. The law comes to mysteriously increase the trespass to make it as bad as possible so that Israel's Messiah, Israel's Davidic Messiah, and I believe that's significant as well given the actions of David, is then able to carry that sin and deal with it when he died. And that, I believe, is the key to unlock that passage from Romans 7 that was read to us earlier. Paul, I believe, isn't talking about himself in that passage. However autobiographical it may sound, I don't believe that's what's going on. Paul, I believe, is talking about Israel's plight under the law. Desperately wanting to obey that law, delighting in it, but not being able to. Because there was anything wrong with the law? No, because of sin. And that good and holy law, therefore resulting in death for them. Paul uses I throughout that passage, I believe, because he wants to show the Gentile Christians in Rome how attached he is to his fellow Jews. And it's why Paul also describes Israel later on in Romans 9 as a vessel of wrath. And it's why the whole purpose of Paul's letter to the Romans is to tell the Gentile Christians who had flooded into the church after Jesus' death and resurrection that they should be utterly grateful to the Jews for the unwitting but nonetheless crucial and sacrificial role that they had played in God's big plan, which would ultimately, Paul says, see all of God's people, Jews and Gentiles, brought into one big family of God altogether. Well, all jolly interesting, Vicar, you might be thinking, but what on earth has any of that got to do with us? Well, there is a uniqueness, in all honesty, about all of this, which means it is, in part, simply a case of learning about the amazing mystery within God's big plan. The application that Paul is working towards in Romans and his reason for explaining the mystery within God's covenant plan in such detail is, as I say, to exhort the Gentile Christians in Rome to love their Jewish brothers and sisters and be utterly grateful for the role that they had played, albeit unwittingly, in enabling them to come to God. And that application for Gentile Christians to love and care and be forever grateful to the Jewish people still has a crucial application today not least with the rise of anti-Semitism in our society. Anti-Semitism, you'll know, is not fading away. It's really on the increase. And Christians should be the utter opposite of anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish. That doesn't mean taking an uncritical attitude 
towards the actions of the State of Israel, far from it. It doesn't mean seeing the Palestinian people as having less rights than the Israelis, not at all. But it does mean recognizing that the Jewish people have played a crucial, if deeply mysterious role in us, as largely Gentile Christians, being able to find God's grace and enter into his people. Most of us here are Gentile Christians. David Lofman, who we're remembering in prayer this morning, is one of our Jewish Christians and very uh, cherished uh, for lots of reasons, including that, but there may be others of you as well. But we're mainly Gentile Christians who have been able to enter into God's people, partly through the crucial role that Israel played in God's purposes and the tragic role that they played as well. You see, we're rightly grateful to Jesus for the suffering and death that he endured so that we could be forgiven and made into God's people. Of course, that is totally right, and that is the supreme thing for us to be grateful for. But what Paul says in Romans is that Gentile Christians should also have a tremendous gratitude as well to the people of Israel for the crucial role that their failure had in preparing the way for God's way of dealing with the world's sin through Jesus. And that's something that I believe we do need to take seriously and think about. That's why we still have Romans, particularly chapters 9 to 11, where Paul goes into great detail about what should be the attitude to the Jews by Gentile Christians. But once we're clear about this, and this takes us back to the way I started this morning, we can, I believe as well, legitimately extend this application as well. You see, the truth is that the way that God works out his plan for our lives continues to be deeply mysterious. All of us here, I think, will have gone through things in our lives that have gone wrong. There might have been things that we did wrong, consciously or unconsciously. It might have been stuff that was done to us, which we had no role in really being able to prevent. And these things can deeply perplex us. They can scar us. We can look back and see these things with so much regret and perhaps regret actions we took or just think, why on earth did that have to happen to me, that awful thing that seemed to derail my life to such a degree? And we can look back and think, what on earth was God up to? Why on earth did God allow those things to happen? What good could possibly come from them? And the temptation at those moments when we look back on our lives and we see these disasters that have occurred, wittingly or unwittingly, the temptation is for us to feel that God is either indifferent to our suffering, that he doesn't particularly care, or we can think that God's incompetent, that he's got good intentions and he's just not particularly good at running the world. And those feelings are completely understandable. And when we read the Psalms and we see people pouring out, honestly, their feelings to God, we often see those sort of emotions reflected. But a third possibility, a third possibility to God being indifferent or incompetent, is that God does know what he's doing. And that the failure, the disaster, and the hardship that we have endured, and perhaps are enduring in our lives, is all part of a mysterious plan that God is working by a plan for further revealing 
his love. It's another mysterious aspect of the plan A that God has never abandoned and God has always been committed to working through. And particularly if you're in the middle of that sort of situation or feeling right now, if there are parts of your life where you think there's so much disaster, there's so much that's wrong there, so much that's difficult and hard, and perhaps particularly if we look back on steps that we've taken, perhaps in good faith, perhaps we knew they were wrong things to do at the time, but if we look back and think, oh, if only all of that could be scrubbed and taken out of the equation. But when we know that can't happen, I hope that this can be of some encouragement to you. To keep faith in the God who perhaps inexplicably continues with his big plan. However much the flawed people that God calls to follow him mess up, the God who continues with his big plan of working precisely through, not even despite, precisely through deeply flawed and broken human beings. He does this before Jesus. He does this after the coming of Jesus, as we know from 2 Corinthians, with Paul talking about God's treasure being revealed through clay jars. God continues to work through broken and flawed and failing human beings. Why does he do this? Because God's intention right from the start of creation was to work through those people made in his image, for better, for worse. And we worship a God of redemption. We worship a God of grace. To go back to what I said earlier, the thing that makes me a Christian more than anything else is seeing the way, time and again, that God can redeem disasters. The biggest hardships, the biggest failures within our lives God has this amazing power to bring redemption and to bring his grace out of the most unpromising situations, bringing opportunities that wouldn't exist otherwise, bringing ways that his love can be revealed and come right to the heart of disaster and hardship. So the story of Israel and its failure being factored into God's plan, it does have a certain uniqueness that we need to understand and we need to grapple with. But it also has an application to our lives as well. Because we're broken and flawed human beings. We're meant to be examples to the rest of the world of what it looks like to live under God's rule and it's best the church is like that. Christ Church is meant to be a shining light to New Morden of what it looks like to live under God's rule and that remains our calling. But we fail, don't we? because we're flawed and we're fearful and we're broken and we mess up. And the wonderful thing is that we worship a God of redemption. We worship a God who factors in that failure into his plan and he uses it to draw other people towards him that wouldn't be drawn otherwise to work his grace in ways that wouldn't happen otherwise. And it's another reason why grappling with the Bible and trying to understand its complexities is crucial and important because it helps us to understand the amazing depth of the God that we worship, the God whose grace is never-ending and the God who works through our very failures as he did with the failure of Israel to bring about his redemption of the world. Let's pray for a moment.
And perhaps let's bring before God right now that aspect of our life which perhaps carries the most regrets. It might be something that we did. It might be something that was done to us which we have very little control over. Maybe some area of our life where we still think that's so characterised by disaster that we're tempted to think it looks hopeless. Father God, would you bring or further reveal the way that your grace is working through that very part of our life? We thank you that you're a God of redemption. We thank you that you're a God who is always working to reveal more of your love. And we ask, Lord God, that we would be able to see more of this and to keep going in faith with you as your followers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.